Hello and welcome to this edition of Woman by Definition podcast. This is actually episode 22. This episode I'm talking to William Clawston. William joined the SDP where he is now party leader in 1982 and campaigned in general elections, local elections and by-elections throughout the 80s. By 1989, he was on the SDP's approved list of parliamentary candidates. William spent a later four years in the Conservative Party, becoming a district councillor in 1999 and serving on Tyneside Council until 2003. A former parliamentary candidate, he presently serves on the Corbridge Parish Council in Northumberland uh, William became a, the leader of the Social Democrats in early 2018 and was re-elected in March 2020, obtaining 89% of the votes returned by members. It certainly is a party where the membership is growing. William holds first and master's degrees in urban planning and property management respectively and read philosophy at Durham University at postgraduate level. The SDP prides itself on focusing on family, community and nation. I have to say, it was an enlightening conversation. We had a lot of uh, common ground, and I think uh, it's time that we maybe had a broader look at some of the smaller parties in our political system to really enforce the change that we all hope to see. If you do like this podcast, as always, I will ask you to like, share, subscribe, and if you can, please leave a review. I'm told algorithms are great if you like a video. Um, so thank you very much uh, for joining me this afternoon, William. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Good, let's crack straight into it. So I am a mother of four children. Uh, the oldest is 18, currently at college. The younger one is very academic, will be going to uni. And then I've got two in the brutal um, state school system. Mm. So looking at education, what sort of magic wand would the SDP be able to wave over it? Wow, that's, that's, that's a very broad <laughs> question. Um, it is. I mean, people tend to think about structures, don't they? So they... they you know, would ask, are the LEAs the right, uh, you know, is that the right institution to look after things? What, what are your policies on free schools and so on? And actually the reality is we've got some very good free schools setting up, which is probably healthy. Um, personally, I think we, it's not SDP policy actually, but we, we may look at this. I think we probably need to get some academic selection back into the state sector somehow. I mean, an idea that I, I favor if you look at a, I don't think you can do it everywhere. I know you've got these little pockets like Kent and other places that still have it. But um, I think the idea that the state is just, you know, is not doing any of that at all. is probably not very good for social mobility, probably not a very good idea. So if you, if you take an example of something like uh, Tyneside, where you've got many, many large comprehensives and you've got one very large uh, fee-paying school, the Royal Grammar School, very expensive to send your kids there. Uh, you know that if you want an elite education that's where you have to go and and I would argue you probably wouldn't change the whole thing but maybe you'd have one good state state grammar or equivalent of, of a state grammar uh, which is is academic selection and then at least you'd, you'd have access for people that don't have the resources to have an absolutely first rate uh, uh, you know uh, academic education and, and compete with RGS which which at present has a free run of course which is the way mm. they like it yeah. Well, where I live, you either pay or pray. Um, mm. And one of the fundamental things that I think is going terribly wrong with many state schools mm. is a lack of expectation and mm. fundamental um, principles about discipline, which yeah. don't really seem to exist. No, they don't. But that also, I mean, a lot of these, these cultural questions are very hard to, to sort of make policy for. So, you know, a lot's been written about the what's called the education blob, the thing that you have to get through to uh, to get more sort of rigor, academic rigor or discipline in schools. And you have this wall, don't you, of of, of opposition from uh, largely liberal left 
teaching establishment and LEAs, which is the same, absolutely the same. So maybe, you know, free schools was a sort of reaction to that. Uh, but you, then you've got wonderful schools like McKellar in London, you know, Catherine yeah. Bible Singh School, which is fantastic, proves it can be done. Um, but then you don't have, you know, a comprehensive thing. And I think it is very, very difficult. I, one sort of STP idea that we have is that, you know, we know who the opposition is, you know, we know who are against rigor and standards and, and are, you know, a part of this thing, but you shouldn't have to vote for them. And that's been an objection that we've had from the start. You look at, across the political landscape uh, and certainly anything, yeah, I mean, the Tories are, are really liberals of, of a kind, I, I suppose. Um, but, you know, if you go further to left from that, you've got the Labour Party has some crazy ideas and the Liberal Democrats appear to be getting even worse. So I don't think you can do it overnight. I think a lot of the cultural stuff is about literally standing up and saying it and then winning sort of hearts and minds. But, you know, from the voters point of view, you shouldn't have to vote for people whose ideas are completely misaligned to yours. Yeah. Mm. So that's why we're trying to put the SDP as, as an alternative for sort of mainstream opinion. So where are you then? Uh, so we've got one side, we've got, um, let's say Boris, and the other side we've got Keir, although actually I think fundamentally the Labour Party is controlled by people f much further left to its mm. detriment. Mm. Where, are you, where are you positioned? Who are you, who are you attractive to? We're, I suppose our, well, the first, the first thing is we're a sort of red-blue mix. You know how the idea that you have this, this idea that, every, you know, all of your views are left-wing or all of your views are right-wing. That's pretty much nonsense. Most people don't, aren't like that. And actually, mm. if you look at it on a family basis, it, it's almost never like that because, mm. you know, mum might work uh, in the NHS, dad might be putting in double glazing and you've got the public sector and the private sector there and that's how it works I mean it, one actually relies on the other so we think that the whole way that we tended to look at politics in terms of the, the left right axis is a little bit clapped out actually in reality so if you look at SDP policy economics were reasonably left-wing I mean we'd nationalize the railways we'd get our uh, country doing building houses which if you're a family friendly party you should do you need to do this uh, look at the southeast in London. You, you know, if you're trying to start a family, best of luck. You know, the state's done nothing for you. So those aspects, industrial policy, a lot of things on that side, on the economics, which are, are pretty left wing, but not crazy left wing, but just solid. Uh, and then on the cultural side, I'd say we are sort of culturally traditional. Again, people say, is that right wing? I don't think it is. I mean, where I'm from in the northeast, uh, most Labour supporters. Uh, traditionally be pretty culturally traditional and that's that's where we are so I suppose the summary is a sort of red and blue mix a sort of one nation conservative type mix with some uh, you know center-left economics yeah mm. we're well, Eurosceptic as well oh so what does uh, culturally traditional actually mean um, as long as so we could spend a long time on this <laughs> I think I, I think for us for us it's been you see I think we've had a we've had a long um, progressive project which which goes back a long way uh, and what the progressives have wanted to do is sort of deconstruct um, we think some of the foundations of society uh, and they're doing this without real consent from the majority you know most people don't think like this I mean a lot of people in universities do a lot of people in the media and culture do but actually most people think that things like I don't know you know you don't have to be religious, but religion is an important sort of foundation of society. Uh, I think the progressive projects be very aggressive uh, to try and deconstruct that. Uh, they've hated the nation state. They hate, you know, the idea of the nation state, think there's something wrong with it, where it's not true. I mean, uh, largely that's where you convene the solidarity to do things together. Uh, mm. That's where people buy into it. What well, it's called the National Health Service for a reason. Um, so they, but they don't like the nation state. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, so deconstruct the family, deconstruct the nation state, get rid of religion. And the latest is to try and sort of deconstruct the idea of um, biological sex, which is just the latest in, in, a, in a great big long line. So if you're taking a, a, a mainstream, culturally traditional uh, sort of point of view, all you're doing is saying that these things are valuable. Some of these things we love and we want to hold on to them. Uh, it's not a, an extreme position, it's a sort of fairly moderate position, but, you know, that's, that's, that's where that fits in. Mm. 
I think a fundamental issue with some of the way our politics is going at the moment is that they look to Twitter to inform mm. them about how people feel. And I think yeah. it's, it's a bonkers idea. There's only about 15% of the UK population on Twitter, yeah. for starters. Yeah. And then lots of opinions like my own, for example, I'm banned permanently from Twitter. Yes, it's, it's a real pity you can get banned for... I mean, I, I just, Twitter's a strange place. I have to do it. I mean, it's been good for us as a party because we've sort of convened uh, fellow travellers, I suppose, via there. But it's, it's an odd thing. I think the danger for the cultural establishment is that they, it's rather like the lack of viewpoint diversity in universities and other institutions. They all pass the same exams. They all, there might be different colours and different genders and, you know, different sexes and things, but they all have the same basic ideas. And they think... Uh, that the rest of the society believes what they do and they don't. And that's why they get a shock. Things like Brexit or Trump for that matter. I'm not a Trump supporter, but you know, uh, these things are a shock to them because they're so, they're not in touch with anyone with no. sort of mainstream views. So they, yeah. Well, if you silence everybody that doesn't have the same view as you, you really aren't going to know what they think, are you? That's true. Yeah. But they don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Because they're right, of course. Right. They're right. You know. Uh, yeah. So the, the power of these technocrats to, I think we've just heard that uh, Google, for example, uh, Google UK um, has not only got involved in the campaign uh, for the GRA reform, uh, opposing the uh, protecting women's rights, but they've also just donated £300,000 to a uh, publication called Pink News, which is mm, uh, mm. ultimately, in my opinion, uh, misogynist mm. and very mm. pro-trans and anti-women's mm. rights. Mm. Uh, the influence that these technocrats over have over public opinion is very worrying. What do you think uh, the government can can do about this? Um, this is very similar to the to the question about sort of broader cultural policy. Anyway, I mean, I I, I think the problem is a bit like the the power of the media. Well, people used to talk about that, you know, way back. And we've got ourselves into a situation where about three or four or five uh, very, very large entities are deciding things in California. And actually not just deciding things, but filtering things. Uh, you know, so what you get to see is, is filtered. Um, Organisations like the BBC basically filter all of their news. Uh, it's not so much that they're, I mean, well, you can argue that they're reporting things inaccurately, but it's, it's what you get told, actually. That's, that's the... Uh, the key thing. Um, I wish I had a, a quick sort of magic wand, uh, you know, response um, to this. I, I, I'm afraid I don't. I think it's part of a, a bigger problem again, post-war organizations, we've got fewer but larger. That's yeah. true of everything. And it's, it's like, you know, how we shop, how we, what we do, fewer uh, institutions, but larger and more powerful. And I, I, I think, you know, certainly on a sort of centre-left outlook, I think the only institution that can help with this stuff is your, is your national government to protect you in some way. The, the SDP is quite, a, again, it's quite old-fashioned, but we're quite happy to say it. We're quite paternalistic. I think if you, you know, and the only institution that could possibly help you or protect your rights is the state, because um, a lone individual up against Twitter or Facebook or Google or any of these things, you're pretty powerless. It's like you against a bank or something. You know, you're, mm. you really, you need a, a more powerful, an equivalently powerful entity to uh, look after your rights. So yeah, I mean, basically I think government is, is the key to it, but governments are also very scared of these institutions. It's, it's weird, isn't it? I've got friends who sort of say, I don't want any more state control. And I said, but you can, you know, every five years, we can kick out a government if we decide that they're not right for us. But getting rid of Google is, a, is, a, is another issue. Yeah, this, the, the libertarian thing, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I actually enjoy, I enjoy debating with libertarians. Um, good fun. But there's so many of them. And they, they I mean, I, the, I, the question I always ask them is just name a single jurisdiction where libertarian ideas have worked one one will do <laughs> one will do so we're, we're i'm afraid we're sort of you know we're where the post-war labor government was you know paternalistic the state has to do heavy lifting in these things you can't i mean if you just leave it to the large corporations you're toast you've got mm. no i mean so i think legislation or or state action i mean it's like it's like collection of taxes with some of these organizations get to it 
get on with it, tax them, take them on. Yeah. Um, you know, so. And criminal responsibility, you know, when you look at more of the, some of the adult content or the criminal content mm. that comes through yeah. uh, and can access children's brains. It sort yeah. of reminds me, I'm sure in the eighties, there was some dystopian uh, movie where the, the television was basically controlling people's brains. And I sort of feel that, we are almost there. Yeah, you are. I, it's terrifying. And I don't, I mean, I have three boys, but they're, they're, they're men now that, you know, they're sort of in their twenties, but um, and maybe they're the sort of tail effect of this, but it, it, I don't, I, you know, social media is not good for, for kids and it needs to be limited. And it, it, it's terrible when you see, we sound terrible, don't we? old fogies flavors. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you see kids walking around the street and you can't walk down the street without, without looking at your screen. So I don't, I don't know where it goes. I think, I mean, I think it's a bit like political attitudes. There is some quite good data now on, on, on the younger, you know, Generation Z or whatever they call they They're sort of reacting, kicking against some of this stuff, uh, which is very healthy. And, and like, well, if, they're, if they do what the rest of us have done, maybe they kick against some of, the, some of the woke views that their parents have, and mm. it's very healthy. So, um, you know, I don't think you need to be despondent, too despondent about it, but it, um, it is a concern. I must say there's been more than one occasion where I've been turning left in my very large, very, very large car mm. and a kid will just be nose down into a phone. Mm. And I just say to my children, that's going to kill you. If it yeah. doesn't rot your brain first, yeah. do not, don't have loud music in your ears yeah. and no. don't be looking at your phone when you're walking around no. the street because you will get hit by a car. Yeah, it's just, I mean, again, it's, I, I my, my grandfather was, he's not with us anymore, I'm 50, 55, but he, um, he used to tell a story, he was born in 1903 before flight, and um, he used to go off and camp up the Northumberland coast with his friend, he'd leave the house in, in Gateshead, wouldn't see his mum, or be able to contact her, you know, for, for two weeks, he'd be back on the train eventually, and what he experienced, I say to my, my kids, you know what he experienced? was proper peace that's the way we evolved you know we that's that's normal if you like mm. uh how can you relax if you take your phone so i mean i, I resisted phones for years and years and years or not phones but, but sort of smartphones <laughs> for years and until my my eldest went to, to live abroad and, and actually whatsapp was the only way to sort of keep in touch and then i and then i got sucked in and then you do more politics of course and you, you've got to use it it's a bit like twitter uh, as i've been quite open about my uh, reaction to Twitter I you know try my best and I, occasionally I, I get it right but I don't I mean it's sort of fairly lots and I think there are some good people on Twitter actually on on our side but you know it's it's a it's a strange thing yeah yeah I've just joined uh, Parlour and mm. it is it's very much full of the majority view is right wing mm. and mm. and then I've got friends like, oh, I can't go on it because it's right wing and I said well it will be right wing if you don't join you know, mm. if, if a plethora of mm. opinions don't join, don't join, then it will be an echo chamber. So you have to put your voice forward yeah. and, and flood it with diversity. Yeah, I mean, maybe that will happen. But the problem is that the way Twitter works, because you've got a little Tweety Bird against every article, you know, and so you've got this cycle going around and it mm. works. So for us as a party, I mean, one or two have drifted to Parliament, they've said there's nothing much going on there. So I don't know, I just think it's, it's disappointing how people get cancelled. There was a chap got cancelled the other day and I couldn't believe it. Um, Lindsay, the academic. Anyway, yeah, I just, uh, what for, you know, anyway. Yeah, it's, um, we are in strange times, which I guess mm. brings us straight on to uh, mm. the issue of free speech. Mine mm. was, because I think I'm an absolutist when it comes to free speech. I, I um, I protect myself by saying I don't think the pornography argument deserves to be mm. in the pr free speech argument, so I can mm. I can escape that. Separate, separate, yeah. <laughs> separate. Um, but I sort of think I'm an absolutist, and then it will get tested. So there's a chap that was known as the pickup artist who sort of had very sinister views about women, um, mm. and his mm. channel has just been cancelled. And I was like, mm. well, if I'm going to say that we should have free speech, then he's included. Um, where is the SDP on the issue of sort of freedom of expression and free speech? Massively in favour of it. And I, I, we, we, we've issued something called the Charter of Academic Freedom. And we did that. We, uh, Rod Little drafted it and we, we sort of drafted it together. But that was a reaction to just an appalling atmosphere on uh, university campuses where, you know, there isn't any viewpoint diversity and guest speakers get cancelled for saying fairly reasonable things and fact based things. 
And um, I, I, I don't know where this is. I, I mean, genuinely, I'm not sure how you can have a university without contest, contested ideas. I mean, one of the the, the BLM thing, uh, which we've talked enough about that, but you know, universities in the States have, have, have put out sort of um, official corporate viewpoints on these things. And I would say, well, since when did a university have a faculty of, of, of academics that agreed on everything? So yeah, you know, so you're saying you all have to agree to this? And it all comes from this sort of um, bossy, uh, progressive project, which is mm. that we can't have any diversity of opinion. And also that if you have the wrong opinion, there's something wrong with you. And, uh, you know, cancel culture is, I mean, it's a lot of it's quite sinister and it's an attempt, it's a, it's a lot about power, um, but it's, it's also mistakes, a rights violation from legitimately holding a separate opinion and talking about it in a, a civilized and adult and nice way. I mean, it, you know, um, that's, so that's what we, we, we wrote, we, the resurgence of the SCB recently is on sort of back of a, a thing called the New Declaration, which I wrote a few years ago. And it's, we talk about free speech in there. And so it's in there. So we're, we're I suppose, as close as you can get to free speech advocates um, as you could get. Yeah. Mm. I fear at the moment what is missing from some of these debates is I feel as a, as a female who isn't allowed without threat of HR departments or I don't actually work, so I don't mm. have one. I'm, I'm my own HR department. But there are women across the country that work in jobs that cannot object to men in their space. Mm. Uh, they cannot even name what we are. There are groups uh, online such as mm. um, endometriosis groups that mm. have been shut down because they're not trans inclusive, because mm. weirdly um, endometriosis is a female only condition. So mm. we, uh, men don't need to participate. And mm. I just wondered um, whether the overriding sort of sexism in society is preventing mm. people from really seeing that the, uh, the ultimate threat on free speech um, is, is on women? Um, well, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure it is. I think it's a much broader project. I think, I think women's rights are part of it and part of your, your campaigning efforts are, are part of this, the same thing because you could say, you could say the wrong thing in a, in a large institution of any kind. Uh, you could say the wrong thing on the nation state or Brexit. I mean, we, when Brexit happened, we, you know, we have a lot of, academics that are members of the party and you know, teach politics and economics and other things throughout the country and they they said we can't come out uh, and what is bizarre what that said is they can't come out and say we agree with the mainstream it, which is rather like a lot of the stuff that you're <laughs> saying you know actually we just think pretty much the same as anyone else so this is an awful atmosphere and corporate it's interesting that corporates are part of it isn't it that you're mm. i mean we're you know we're an independent party we can say what we think is right and uh but but wh when did it become a privilege to to say what what is what you know what your political view is or whatever you know but you're you're right i mean i think in 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 organizations if you've got a and this is why i can understand it i mean the blm thing recently you've got to it's rolled over all of the institutions despite a pretty much a lack of scrutiny of the of the actual manifesto they put out yeah and um, so they've been treated in a different way to any other political project. And um, everyone has to accept it. And if they don't, they, I suppose they risk losing their job. And if you've got mm. a family to support, I can understand. But that, if that's true, then, I mean, I went to Poland in, when I, I did a degree in planning in the 80s. One of my friends was an Anglo-Polish guy who went off to Warsaw. Strange place to do urban design. <laughs> but he, he went up but he was he was distant he wanted to support solidarity that's where he went and we were monitored when we when i went over to visit him and bugged and and you realize that the, in those days in the 80s behind the iron curtain there was three species of truth you know there's private truth public truth nonsense false everyone knew it was and then you had workplace truth which was was sort of you know if you trusted colleagues you'd just about get away with it and then there was truth. The truth was dinner table truth. And that was the, that was the only species of truth that really mattered to polls because around your own dinner table in your own house, unless it was bugged, I suppose, that's where truth was. But I, it's horrifying to think we're mm. pretty much, that's pretty much where we are, I think. Mm. And in the name of Do you think it's that progression. bad? Yeah, do you think I, it's that? I do, I do. I, um, 
I know friends that have lost friends just by saying that they don't think trans women are women or that they don't mm. think children should transition. Mm. Um, I've been mm. interviewed twice by the police for saying mm. that. Yeah. Uh, I think it is, I think it's very sinister more than it's not just the, the corporations. It's also our infrastructure, our public services, our educators. Like I had letters from all of my children's school about what they were doing for black lives for mm. BLM. Mm. Uh, and I just sort of wrote to them and I said, have you, have you even looked mm. at what they stand for? Do you mm. know the end goal of breaking mm. the nuclear family? I know. Do you it's know this stuff? Incredible. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, I, you know, on BLM, you know, we, we, as a party, we've, we've said all we can about it really. But I mean, I just, uh, the, the central, what amazes me is that the central claim this time round on, on a, uh, a, um, uh, a disparity of police shootings, a racial disparity, but is, is, is no basis in fact. I mean, there's lots of other disparities on policing, and the policing really does need to be looked at. But, but not all that actually. But, but the BBC and all the everyone else's coverage has given people a, an impression that that's not true. And you know, there's some very good reports, a little bit boring, 55 pages of regression analysis and data. If you want to find it, R. G. Frey at Harvard University had a look at it. Um, but no one knows it and that and it's so the msm isn't getting any i mean it's so selective and so they'll mm. only really highlight stories that suit their political agenda and so it's fairly naked propaganda which is gets us back to poland yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had uh, my, my <coughs> daughter said, um, I'm going to come off social media because if mm. I don't put a black square, mm. Um, mm. then mm. I'm going to get um, harassment. Mm. I've got friends in entertainment mm. that just said, you know, I either have to make up something that mm. something's happened in my personal life and come off or I will have to pick a side and mm. picking, uh, picking anything other than what yeah. everybody else is doing is, is just going to lose me my career. It's like a wave, isn't it? A sort of wave of everyone. I mean, we, I don't, I don't know if you've come across it, but we, uh, one of my colleagues in the SDP, Ben Cobley, wrote a book called The Tribe a few years ago, which is about the liberal left system of diversity. It's quite a long book, a little bit academic, but it's brilliant. And, it, and he goes into how, how the system works, where you convene all these disparate groups, uh, a lot of, quite a few of whom are, are mutually antagonistic in reality, a bit like LGBT, you know, the T, sort of you know, a little bit antagonistic to the rest. They convene all these groups, and then there's a ban on mutual criticism inside the tent. Yeah, so it just, so, the, so all, everyone is coerced, basically, mm. inside the, you can't really criticize a fellow victim, you know, because the whole yeah. system is based on dividing the whole of society into victims and oppressors. Mm. And it condemns, you know, people, well, people like me, I suppose. Uh, well, especially as a, as a, people like you, with you. Yes, yeah, obviously, yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, which is unkind, yeah, at the very least is unkind. Uh, but, but yeah, so that the system is, is, is strange, but it's all based also on giving, constantly giving way. And we get into a habit, institutions get into a habit of giving way constantly. Uh, and as I say, I mean, as you say, if you're, you know, if you've got a mortgage to pay and so on, you, you're going to give way, I suppose, unless you're, unless you're really strong. And then the only, and then the only voices you've got are, are, are you know, people like you who are independent. Mm. You know, you're not, not, not yeah. silenced by anyone, and apart yeah. from Twitter. <laughs> well, the, 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 particularly when you look at just political opinions, I mean, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that controversial to think that you may want your country to come out of the European Union. Oh, no. And there are perfectly rational reasons as yeah. to do that. But um, the fact that that became, um, and it's not even emotional, right? It's not, it's not about identity, which I, which I think can almost be forgiven for being um, rather oversensitive and censorious mm. because people think it's a personal attack. But this was, this was a political decision. Yeah. Uh, no, on Brexit, we, I mean, what, what exasperated me was that the, I mean, our case is the Social Democratic Party is a left-wing case for Brexit. It was because, you know, uh, perhaps not entirely Benite, but certainly the thinking of Peter Shaw or people like that, is that there's no, if you want to affect change in society, you need the levers of control to be under democratic control, all of them, industrial mm. policy, trade, the lot. Um, and a lot of you know, to, to give those powers away to people that you don't elect, uh, not a terribly good idea. And we made all those points. And we did, emphatically did not want, about five or six million Brexit voters on the left did not want 
uh, sort of, you know, chlorinated chicken and, and free trade, you know, it was not the agenda. You know, that was a sort of second order thing. The first order thing was democracy. Um, you know, Claire Fox, you know, is probably the, the, the figurehead for the, for the left in this. But, the, you know, so the arguments are there, perfectly legitimate arguments. And actually it was always the Labour tradition. But, yeah. Mm. I do some. I do think actually the fault of the um, Leave campaign uh, was that they didn't they didn't make a, a good enough left wing case. So I think mm. the, the left wing thinkers that came to um, decide that they were Eurosceptics or had always been Eurosceptics were one thing, but they couldn't really bring or inform the wide populace that there was also a, another choice besides Remain. Yeah, I mean, Labour, Labour leave John Mills and, uh, you know, and Brendan Chilton and the people that did it. I mean, we know them and we're friends with them, and um, sort of fellow travellers. But we, Labour leave was a, you know, was a vigorous campaign, but it was quite small, I agree. And the problem was that none of the parliamentarians, I think there were eight Eurosceptic Labour MPs, which is, which is astonishing, because uh, it mm. used to be the, used to be the majority. But that's your sort of, you know, the, maybe some of the people in the middle are just sheep and they just, you know, they saw the leadership going to Blair, you know, through the whole of the Blair New Labour thing. It was all, you know, Europhile. So maybe they just went along with it. But uh, anyway, so. Well, it's done. Or is it done. before we ever get there? Almost. Well, I, th I think it probably is done. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. Um, so we've looked at cancel culture and the, the sort of free speech aspect. And I've. I wonder if one thing that we could do that was quite a solid thing to do was maybe encourage other people besides university graduates mm. to uh, become teachers. So we yeah. get a more diverse sort of, not a newly qualified university yeah. graduate to, to go into teaching. Well, I think that's true in teaching, but I think it's true in every institution. I think the root, I think we've over-educated you know, to, to have half of school leavers going to university is not socially helpful. One of the costs of that policy has been a total neglect of vocational training and training the rest of society. Mm. And I think it didn't matter so much. Um, you know, I, I, I went to university in the, in the 80s, and I think about 12% of people went then, and it didn't matter so much to the rest of society if, you know, the, the vast majority of people didn't, so it didn't really matter. I think it was, it's been harder for uh, the 50% that don't go now, there was more sort of social pressure on them to think, well, I really should be going to uni. I would say to kids now, probably don't. I mean, if you're a bright, uh, you know, 17, 18 year old, get some A-levels and get into industry. But I think the roots, uh, you, you make a brilliant point about the roots into, uh, into the careers should be open to school leavers without university across the board. Mm. I mean, I think the civil service, BBC, some of these institutions should take people on and have roots right the way throughout. It is not, I mean, it's simply false to say that you need to have three years uh, sleeping in until 12, <laughs> drinking too much and doing all the other things that students do to become a useful participant. In fact, uh, uh, the worst courses actually just get people into bad habits. They're, they come out probably indoctrinated in some cases and it's not useful to society. The whole thing needs slimming down. So, you know, as a party, we're in favor of a smaller, university mm. sector and a bigger vocational training sector but roots this this idea of roots in you know if you're bright you don't stop learning in life you know you, at any stage in any organization it's a good organization you've got to have roots uh, in but yeah the, the, we need to look at that yeah, it'll be yeah. Helpful. yeah well i sort of say to my children look at where you want to be at 25 and work backwards and if, mm. if university is essential then you go to university and if it's not i don't think you should yeah, and I, I think and I think the best advice you could give young people now, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a bleak time, isn't it, because of what's happening to the economy. But if you look at it from the other side of the tennis net, which they isn't, it's human nature not to do that. But if you look at it from the organisation's point of view, organisations are always looking for good people, always. I mean, it's, you know, um, a lot of people do just enough work to not to get the sack. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, um, so, in, in, you know, I think kids looking for jobs now uh, should should remain optimistic and, and, and understand that, you know, people, organisations anywhere, whether it's in industry or government or whatever, always looking for good people. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if our education contributes to the sort of the loss of the value that there is um, some integrity and sort of a good day's work, because I think 
schools seem to a spoon feed children um mm. b we've discussed the discipline but mm. i ju i just wonder if i've talked to people who do apprenticeships and they say that that basically kid, a lot of british kids just think it's almost uh, they're too entitled to do a full day's work mm. and maybe we need i don't know how we unravel that sort of culture cultural attitude but it has to you know it's got to stop yeah i think that's true i although you know i think there are i think a lot of kids you know there are, there are a lot of kids work extremely hard you know and i think we i think it may be a tendency for us to to be a bit nostalgic about you know um how it was but i think um i think root i think i think the most important thing is roots in into i mean i you know get slim slim universities down uh and but i i think there's no doubt that a 21 year old that's been to university is not as as grown up and motivated as someone that's been in industry for three years that's for sure and actually if you look at the employability uh someone that's actually done the job for three years is is you don't have to you, you you've got a you're way ahead way way ahead yeah yeah i agree i think that, that um particularly things like nursing Mm. I, I remember when everyone has to go to university and I'm just thinking, well, I don't think the hospitals are actually working better than they used to. Yeah, it's strange, but this is the, in so many areas, this is the case because, um, you know, say if you take hospital management, now you have a very, very highly paid uh, hospital manager. Um, it used to have an almond, it used to decide what happened in, in, in the, on the site. Uh, you know, and it was up to them to decide whether car parking was charged or not and so on. And, uh, you know, you used to have town clerks in um, local authorities. Now you have chief executives getting paid more than the prime minister. So, I mean, remember that a lot of people, uh, again, it's probably human nature, but a lot of people use organisations for their own benefit, don't they? And it's not necessarily to the society's benefit or, or even yeah. to the organisation sometimes. But yeah, so I think there's there should be a sort of recalibration. Uh, you know, we've got a policy uh, that says that anyone in the public sector shouldn't be paid more than the prime minister. Uh, you've got, you've got, you've got university vice chancellors being paid three quarters of a million quid. What? I mean, look at the kids. <laughs> the kids are taking on debt for this stuff. It's crazy. So How yeah, else are they going to get identity politics out to the map? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking of uh, sort of spending, I have. Uh, I've talked to people on the left and people on the right, and, and maybe those things are just uh, almost redundant anyway. But mm. there are two schools of thought about the NHS. Mm. There is either throw more money at it, it's underfunded, mm. or there is lots and lots of waste go right, running right the way through it. Mm. Um, what's, the, what's the SDP's position? The SDP's committed to spending more, but, you, but any government needs to spend more if you just have a look at the demographics. So if you look at the demand side, there's two, there's two things that pull, that give you no choice but to spend more on the NHS. Uh, the, the proportion of people that are, are older, so the, mm -hmm. the st structural population pyramid, you will definitely have to, and that's uh, social care is in the same category, you have to spend more on that. The other thing is the, the sort of uh, supply side in terms of technology and what's possible. So, so pharmaceuticals, companies you know invent a new drug this is available and it can treat people there's pressure but it's expensive so you have to so technology comes from the other side and say well we can do all this now should we do it and, and, the, and the government you know the state finds it very difficult to, to ration it and stop it i i mean i i think there's a truth about the health service which uh which not many people say i think the truth is that it's a pretty good universal service it's not the best and I think we get a, a, a sort of good, a good service for not a particularly high price. So mm. if you, I think we spend about nine, nine and a half percent of GDP. It's going to be, it's going to be ten percent, eleven percent, possibly in the end. Uh, what do we get out of it? If you're seriously ill, you'll get treated brilliantly. If you've got a chronic issue, if you've got a chronic problem, it's not so good, and everyone knows that. Um, so if you've had an accident or you, you know, then it's, it's first rate. Um, so we don't, apart from, you know, spending a little bit more money on it, but not vastly more. I, I think, I think it's probably, we have to accept the, the, the light with the shade yeah, on the NHS. Well, I talked to an air conditioning salesman and he said the best people to go and see to mm. kit out their buildings 
who will just pay whatever you ask mm. are counts and employees. Mm. Uh, they're not very well, uh, they're not very good at negotiation or business because it's mm. not their money, it's not their profits. Mm. If you mm. want a more difficult negotiation, you go private sector. Mm. So, I mean, you talk about limiting the, mm. the, the money. If mm. we could get someone in the private sector that, I don't know, if the council um, uh, procurement officer was on 90,000, but he saved mm. the council millions, I'd mm. be more than happy for him to do it, him or her to take that wage. I think that's, that's just a truism of public sector endeavour from tip to toe. I think, you know, it is just true that it's a bit like the, the, the truth that people don't wash hire cars. You know that that's or you know in the public sector if 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 the if the big pen falls under the table, I won't pick it up. I'll just get a new one from stores. To some extent, some of the the inefficiencies in the public sector are uh, are sort of baked into the structure. It's I mean it, you know there isn't. I, I my first job in, in planning was at Westminster City Council, and we were the, one of the first councils to have what they called performance related pay. Uh, it was hilarious. Everyone got it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did about sort of 350 cases or something a year and, and, and some people would be doing 200 and they'd still get the little, the little, <laughs> the little uh, bonus. And I'd say, well, why? And they said, oh, yeah, but their, their cases were more complex or whatever. So they'd make, they'd make all these rules up. So I don't think, I, I think we, I don't actually think that applying private sector ideas always works in the public sector right if anything i think you need to return to a sort of more old-fashioned just just a public provision thing you know uh, and, and and just to fight the corner for the public sector what people don't realize is and what libertarians and sort of free market liberals don't realize is that in the realm of what you're trying to do the state can do things very very quickly and on a huge scale so if you want things done the state will always and is a very very useful thing i i completely take on the point about the the sort of inherent inefficiencies and incentives i think that's just true but i think for every um for every you know slightly not motivated public sector you know employee you've got others that are that are public enterprise i mean i work i've worked with many of them and i've worked i mean i i was only five years in the public sector but you know uh, there's some wonderful people very very uh, committed so mm. yeah well i'd be an absolute fool to miss uh asking you about your current trans policy yeah well we um we a lot of people have, have been asking us over the last sort of particularly six months but the year you know what's your policy on trans what's your policy on on uh, sort of sex-based rights and we finally produced we've worked very hard on it we finally produced a a policy a few weeks ago uh, and the aim of the policy is basically to represent the what we would say the sort of mainstream moderate view so it's a sort of humane policy which we think defends uh trans rights where necessary you know if you've if you've gone through uh you know uh, if you've got your G grc and you you've you hop the hoops and you want to live your life as a trans person we should respect that and i think it's very important we do but on the same side, um, it's also important that the concept of biological sex is defended. And it's astonishing how many people, uh, how, or really how few public uh, figures are prepared to do that now. But I think that's the mainstream sensible position that most people take. Most people understand that. And so what we've tried to do is to get a policy which, as I say, you know, protects trans rights, but also where you have to take an absolute stance you defend biological sex as an idea you uh you defend um segregation in sport which we think from safety and fairness is very important mm -hmm. uh you defend you defend seg segregation in prisons and refuges uh and the other thing that we thought was very important was to was to was to put a ban on on medical physical interventions for for under 18s so we're, we're very concerned about um some of the things that the Tavistock Clinic are doing. But mm. if you, I mean, I would urge anyone to have a look at the policy because it's, I mean, it's not, it's not gonna please everyone, but we, we have worked very hard on it. We think it's a, a sort of humane, sensible approach to these things that, that defends what the important things are. Sorry. Do you think, because I have a dim view about creating legal fictions, yeah. um, and I think actually a, a tolerant and just society 
would not need to record somebody's biological sex on their birth mm. certificate mm. as the opposite of what it is. Mm. Um, do you think the, uh, does the STP have a view on the GRA and whether or not we sort of, because it, it came about because they mm. wanted two people of the same sex to marry. Mm. And at the same time as the GRA saying that you and I have to recognize somebody as the opposite sex in certain mm. situations, Neither the Church of England or the aristocracy have to do the same. They they mm. they don't inherit. Um, mm. So, do you mm. think you there would? Do you think the country has an appetite to revoke the repeal of the GRA? I, I th our position. We what we've in making the policy. We've tried to stay away from uh, referencing particular acts. So we don't mention right. uh, the GRA, the 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 04 Act. We don't mention the Equality Act either. But we what we do say in the policy because the idea of the policy is to convene. If you agree broadly with what our view is, then then maybe you support us. So on on um, the need to accurately uh, record facts, okay, in 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 public records, you've got to record facts. That's where we stand. So uh, you know we're also for for plain English in uh, in the NHS and with with medical treatments and so on. Um, so yeah, I think we I think if someone is born. Um, uh, a, a boy or born a girl that 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 should be recorded and i i'm not in favor of uh if, of changing that yeah that's fantastic well we've we've we're now post um covid kind of nearly mm. sort of mm. possibly. um mm. <laughs> possibly mm. uh, how do you think uh young people um and sort of less less empowered employees uh, will will be helped sort of from now over the next few years. Do you think there's there's something that the there's interventions that can help? Um, I think public policy is very very difficult. I think what Sunak has done on the furloughing and the, and the various business schemes, I think probably a very sensible and a, probably a minimum. Um, I think going forward one of the most important things the government could do is keep things going in a sort of Keynesian way. Mm. So we have a, a, a policy of trying to, trying to, it was probably about 350 billion extra additional expenditure across the next this year and next year. Uh, we have a policy of, of, of basically paying for that in a, in a 60 year bond, just kicking it down the road as it were. Um, it's, it is fundable. There are some questions about bond rates, aren't there, about, you know how long they stay very low but as long as you have qe you can you can manipulate it uh, to keep bond rates down and the cost of funding that would be about five billion a year so one i think the first thing the government could do is just keep keep the train on the rails as much as it can be but i think um and, and i think there are some schemes there were some building schemes which they can do again you know old-fashioned infrastructure uh, I'd love them to do some public sector housing. They seem very reluctant. Every time mm. you speak to people in the Conservative Party about the you know, housing supply, they, they, they witter on about the planning system or about the taxation system or brownfield land or whatever. Uh, no, there's an answer. Build some houses. Get the state, roll its sleeves up and build some houses. You can't do it instantly, but you should do it. And remember that you're not... I mean, the worst... New Labour did this a lot, actually. Spend a lot of money and then create flows so they just paid off their their, their supporters so you, the society has nothing to show for the flow in the end mm. that's not true of housing or, or, or railway infrastructure not hs2 <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh it's not true of housing because what if you spend 10 billion pounds on housing you've got 10 billion pounds worth of housing and actually largely even if it's public sector housing you've got a flow in rents from that which can exceed uh you know your your bond rate so you know it's it's good expenditure as opposed to bad mm. but i do think it's going to be tough i i really do i i, I pity uh, you know i i i think it's it's very tough for this generation you know i've got uh you know my youngest is just graduating now and um uh it's it's very different from his big brothers you know i think it's 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 tough yeah it'll be okay be right well, I live, I live in a, a socioeconomically not particularly buoyant place. I would imagine the average wage here is lower than the, the sort of average wage in a, in a city. Um, mm. We have a brownfield site right next to a train station that connects this mm. place where I live to mm. Bath, Bristol, Reading, London, Slough, Cardiff. Yeah. Brilliant. 
they have left this brownfield site for 20 years really it could be turned into starter flats starter mm. homes you could bring people from bath and bristol who can't afford to live there you change the local economy you pump money into one of the secondary schools mm. Mm. and you've changed the fortunes of the mm. entire place so what's and the can problem? anybody see it i have no idea there's asbestos so it makes it more expensive Mm. They tried to convert the Brownfield site into something that we don't need, like a cinema or bowling alley. Yeah. It's houses that we need. It's, I don't get it. I say to so my husband every, every week with the lottery, if I win a hundred million, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I'll yeah. make us billionaires. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes with sites, Brownfield sites, it's a particular inhibitor to development, like it'll be contaminated or something, but that's actually, it is, that's a role for the state sometimes, not always, but you know, it depends whether the thing at the end is, uh, still got a positive value but if it hasn't then the state should get its uh you know get it pick and shovel out get on with it yeah. well that's what i think and it's so it's so easy people like families like myself we want a good secondary school we want to give mm. our kids the best mm. chance that they possibly mm. can by sending them to a good school yeah if the council just invested then the council changes the fortunes of everybody mm. i I don't understand why I think, that's I think, not obvious. Again, I think one of the things, I think part of the problem is that the councils have lost uh, confidence in their ability to, I think the whole public sector has lost confidence in some ways, but they, they interfere and they regulate with things sometimes, but they've lost confidence to actually do something. So your council official will be sitting behind a desk and, and scratching their heads. And A, yeah, you're quite right that their job doesn't depend on them getting that site bringing that site into effective use immediately but they'll be worried about it and then when they oh, well it's got to be this or that i think oh you know we better get a better get a consultant to say that you know why they do all that because then if they don't they'd have to take the responsibility yeah. and the old way of doing it of having a county engineer or a borough engineer you know saying right we're going to do this and we'll you know it's a different world i mean people yeah. now they're terrified of criticism yeah. And it, in a way, it gets back to what we were saying before about being terrified of having an opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah, cultural. Well, I wonder how much outsourcing on a local level particularly helps. So uh, for, I lived in Bristol. Uh, mm. We had food, um, mm. food uh, recycling and rubbish collection. Mm. And the food recycling and rubbish and everything, that went out to tender. Now, somebody came in, undercut mm. the current mm. uh, supplier or service, mm. whatever it's called, mm. uh, and clearly had undercut themselves so much they couldn't really afford to do the job effectively so then you'd get bits of food like awful rotten in your bin mm. for two weeks food mm. uh on the floor yeah. and i just why why isn't it why doesn't it make economic sense for the council to own the lorries and employ the refuse it does, collectors? it does it does make sense but we've we've had a outsourcing uh is another idea which was started basically in the in the in the in the, the 80s uh sort of thatcher type idea of everything has to be um costed as if it were the private sector and what they've forgotten is that these are just services basically these are services that people have paid for and very often it's 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 simpler all around to provide the service uh you know um uh, collect tax and provide the service mm. you what you've described there about outsourcing is a is a is a brilliant description of the of the uh, franchise railway system we have so you you, you dangle these uh, railway franchises to operators that bid the on the northeast uh, you know the east coast main line which is the one i use a lot uh, or used to use a lot until covid um you know the, the people bid for it can't make it work and then what happens you know you know what happens the state has to come in and run it for them. So mad. And that, yeah, and that's what happens. So you go around in circles. And I think some of these things, uh, that some of these things are economists saying, this is the latest idea. And, it, and they, they are sort of cyclical. It's a bit like, um, it's a bit like, you know, it, well, 300 years ago, all beer was brewed in pubs. And then you had amalgamation, the small breweries, and then Drayman on horses. And then you have, you know, great big, uh, breweries producing mm. you know, lager for the whole country, and then, but now now you're getting back into into brew house again. You know, you're getting craft ale and people brewing. So to some extent, it's 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 going around in circles. And you know, if you have an economist saying, "Well, this is the way to do it," uh, that's what they'll they'll take because economists said so. 
Well, it also prevents anyone, I sort of feel it's almost like your mobile phone. You buy your mobile phone from a service provider, your mobile phone's made by someone else, and then somebody else has the line and the connection. Mm. And if you want to complain about any of the bits mm. of your phone, mm. there's one of three people that will tell you it's somebody else's fault. Sure, sure. And that, and that, but then maybe this is about um, relieving uh, themselves of responsibility. I mean, there was a, there's a, a wonderful simplicity to a service being provided by someone directly, which is that they don't mow the grass, then you, mm. you know who to go to. Whereas anything else is it's like, well, that, you know, it's this problem and that problem. So mm. uh, probably too much complexity. But there's a role. I think, I think the lack, lack of confidence in the public sector to decide things. This is, the, this is the thing that I see and I've seen over many years. You know, I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but... If you if you run the numbers on on public sector housing in in a city like London, uh, if the London boroughs um, just did 150 houses a year each, that's all. This is not very. I mean, it's a small housing company could do that, uh, but they they a lot of them don't have the conf, well they they don't have the means or the confidence to do mm -hmm. it. But actually, if they all did it, uh, you know, we calculated across the country if that level of development was you'd house a million people in 10 years. And actually, when we when we formulated that policy, it was too small. And Corbyn, uh, the last election, his proposal was double hours, and his was actually close to where it should be, to be honest. Right. Well, throughout COVID, we recognised some people who apparently, prior to COVID, we didn't know existed, which were workers in care homes, key workers, mm. and, and mm. frontline workers generally. Mm. Um, mm. Do you think it's feasible? Do you think that there would be uh, a genuine appetite to pay care workers more and maybe not just issue them a green badge, but um, actually give them more respect, pay them more and make mm. the care homes, which are incredibly profitable, mm. more accountable for the decent wages of their employees? Well, increasing uh, wages, particularly you know, people that are poorly paid is, is, a, is a main aim. I mean, you, you know, national living wage uh, is, is, is something that was brought in. It was, it's necessary, but it's, it's insufficient, really. Mm. Um, I think one of the root causes uh, of wage suppression in the last 20 years has been um, our participation in, uh, in the European Union because there was never any limit to the pool of, of, of labor that you could call on. Um, that had two effects, two basic effects on the British labor market. The first effect was that we stopped training anyone. We didn't have to. Mm. I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you have a, a, a lad in Ashington and, and he's leaving school, not, let's not bother giving him engin engineering skills or, or you know, teach him how to change uh, hydraulic pipes or anything, just leave it. Because you can get someone from Poland to come in uh, who's going to work for that price or cheaper mm. so it just is a massive you know disincentive to train anyone and then the the second uh idea which is a basic idea and, and i've debated with with people uh, on the remain side on this um many times who just uh, have a, a blind spot to this i mean it's just if you have if your labor market is huge if you have a labor market of 600 million people and and your and your low-paid workers are having their uh, feet held to that fire the, the the result will be lower wages i can tell you and it will be and so actually controlling the labor supply probably slightly less immigration would have an effect i think and it's already starting to have an effect in some sectors on wage rates and that's good and you want some wage inflation so let's hope it well, happens. i had this it might be a, just a dream that um i've spent a lot of time in china my father used to work uh, for a Clark shoes out there actually and mm. I've spent a lot of time out there and I've spent time in Hong Kong and and mm. what's happening in Hong Kong has is so distressing mm. and whilst the human cost in Hong Kong is great and that's bad enough mm. the power that China gets to wield if they take Hong Kong mm. and they do this to Hong Kong without any sort of massive uh, response from the the rest of the the world I think will be absolutely devastating mm. uh, what do you think can be done apart from bringing over 200,000 uh, people from Hong Kong, what more do you think the UK could do uh, to encourage the sort of international community to condemn what China's doing? And can we divorce 
from China if we so desired? Right, well, there's a lot there. The first thing sorry. is, <laughs> sorry, no, it's good. Um, f first thing is, uh, uh, like you, I, I, we have uh, links in Hong Kong as a family, and my, my father had a, a business there, and so when we were very young, uh, we went over quite a lot. Um, he, he had a, a business on Hennessy Road in Wen Chai, and, um, it, you know, some of my fondest memories as a child are actually, you know, being told to go and amuse myself, usually get the, get the hydrofoil to Macau or whatever for the day. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've got immense affection for the place and, uh, um, you know, we've had family, well, other family members work there and so on. So I, I think what's happening to Hong Kong is just an, an absolute tragedy and I can't actually see any, I, I wish I could be more optimistic about it. I think China largely doesn't have to listen to anyone. Um, I think the people, certainly the leaders of the, uh, of the, uh, the democracy movement there are starting to to leave. You know, some of the young people are starting to leave already. Um, I think Australia's policy has been been helpful. They've just given a a, a sort of five year additional uh, amnesty to to Chinese university students. But it's very complex because um, a lot of the Chinese students are, are pro communist party. So you know, uh, it's it's awkward. I I, I don't actually. Th I think we're probably headed for a you know, a, a sort of Cold War situation with China eventually. So I don't think we, uh, so the answer, try and answer the question, um, I, we, we must, I mean, we're not, as a party, we're not pro-mass immigration because I think there's, I think we've got a, we'd be better off with a, 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 a calmer immigration pause type. And I think there are, you know, if you want, if you care about social cohesion and good race relations, you, you do want that actually after mm. the very high levels. So for lots of reasons, but I think um, in relation to Hong Kong, this is an exception. I think it's a moral exception. I think the fact that we were, um, that we're party to the treaty makes it an, an exception. So uh, certainly I, we don't, haven't issued official party policy in it, but my position is pro um, granting, certainly to the holders of the old British uh, Hong Kong passport rights to come here. Yeah, I think we yeah. should, but I don't, I'm, I, I'm afraid it's quite bleak. I, don't, I can't think the, I, think the, I don't think the Chinese are in any position to um, uh, to listen to to us, but I think there should be more solidarity between Western countries and others who mm. oppose China's position. I think the COVID pandemic's been very interesting because all these free traders that are were so cocksure about nothing mattering, about you know it doesn't matter where you produce anything. Well, they've had to rethink, and what we've been saying for years is that. You, it does matter what is made and it matters who makes it and it, and, and actually buying uh stuff from from effectively slave factories is just not a moral thing to do anyway so not only we should we reshore some of this stuff um i think internationally we should be uh have more solidarity uh but I, so i think we're probably headed to a frostier uh situation that, the stb conference in leeds last year i said that anyone that wanted to have Huawei build our 5G is insane. Mm. <laughs> but it's taken the government about nine months and the pandemic to catch up. I mean, it was crazy. What are they doing? Crazy. So, Well, I don't remember a time when, uh, you know, the, the common uh, <laughs> discussions were, well, you can trust China. And yet yeah. we've trusted them with lots of really integral parts of our infrastructure. It's, mm. um, it's It was naive. Insane. It was totally naive. It's, it's, it's like a... It's, it, you know, the idea of a, a sort of, um, the idea of a, a globalized free trade, free liberal market, is just a, quite a utopian idea. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's hit by reality in the end. Well, I grew up where Clark Shoes were produced. And so um, mm. I remember the last day, I remember the day the last factory closed mm. and mm. it changed my hometown forever yeah. and yeah. and some of that manufacturing in, in initially it went to um the developing sort of south americas mm. and eastern mm. europe and then mm. it just went over to china yeah so well but, some you know. of it's going to come back no i mean we won't get everything back but a lot of it can and but i think before it can you've got to have a government that wants it to mm. uh, and i think hopefully i, I conservatives are I, you know i've got a lot of conservative friends and but they're liberals. Most most Tories are liberals. They're not really. I mean, they're not even conservative. I'd say I'm more socially conservative than most of them. And uh, and as far as state action, they're pretty indifferent. Yeah, pretty 
they're not bothered particularly. So we'll wait and see. Let's hope. See, I have a post-Brexit Brexit sort of, I voted Remain actually. Uh, I was very 50-50, but I did vote Remain. But now I'm sort of thinking, well, we can have lovely British made things. And instead of mm. my children have like 500 t-shirts each, they'll just have five. And we will, and I, I note that all the sort of mass climate change movements um, mm. don't really even mention China particularly. No, it's a strange one. I mean, you know, uh, green, green politics should be pro uh pro nation state and local production they don't say you don't hear so much but um as a remain as a democratic remainer actually you're very important because you swung it i mean it was the people it was the people that voted remain but wanted to respect democracy that made the difference i mean us lot we voted leave because we we believe in that but actually the thing that got it over the line was about i don't know what percentage maybe about half remain voters so uh you know thought no come on honor this we voted that way and mm. and in the end that isolated the little 20 percent of uber remainers who who were non-democrats so i think actually you it's funny when you said um you know i voted remain you've done trigonometry haven't you and i have mm. too and it's funny when con and, and francis always say we voted remain because we're good people <laughs> that's what they say <laughs> that's what they say it's very funny yeah. <laughs> well i was like you like uh you said i i voted remain and then when i saw the fuss and the amount of people that got so cross and didn't want to honor it i was like i'd vote leave if it was tomorrow just yeah. to honor the vote How, yeah and yeah. and the the the, for, the potential fallout from not honoring that vote bearing in mind it wasn't it, it wasn't just people that had an intellectual kind of uh or a, a moral idea about it there were some people that felt this was the only vote in their lifetime that actually mattered. And it to was. tell them that then it yeah. didn't matter would have been just the most stupid thing. We'd have never recovered. Honestly, we, I, I don't think a lot of people would never have voted again uh, if, 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 we, if it hadn't been honoured. And I think the people that wanted to dishonour it weren't bothered about that. And I think a lot of them thought, well, good. You know, mm. so I, it's really quite horrific. Anyway, I think we're, we're hopefully there. Well, on a final question then, as we're talking about voting, um, why should anybody vote SDP? Um, I think any, any citizen should take a look at the landscape, take a look at the political landscape and, and just ask yourself a couple of questions. First, are you content with the options that you have now? When you look at the Tory party, you know, and the Lib Dems and the Labour party and the Greens, um, are you content with the offer? Uh, and then the second question is, do any of those people really represent what you are? Because I think, I mean, on the data, it's true that about half the country are a little bit like us. They're sort of, um, you know, quite patriotic, but not, uh, you know, xenophobes there. They want good, uh, you know, public services. Uh, they quite like the trains to, to run on time, might support nationalisation, want a good health service. And, and so they, they occupy what this position is, which is a sort of red and blue mix. And I think a lot of us, about half of the population are there. So I think if you want it, you have to build it. And um, it's going to take time. We're a small party. We're growing very quickly. Uh, and so I think, yeah, the, the basic reason is there always was something missing on the landscape. And, and now it's here. So, yeah. Well, if, to quote Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. That's what the idea is. Yeah. <laughs> it's really lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Right, I'm going to come on. Well, wasn't that great, uh, even if I do say so myself. Do tune in for the next episode of Woman by Definition and remember to like, share and subscribe.